A startup journey is an amazing learning experience because you realize that as a leader, you absolutely have to become a different leader, like a drastically different leader at different phases of company. And unless you know that that's coming, you'll learn it on the job painfully or you get the right coaches and mentors. Or if you've been through the gamut, you can see the playing field shift as the business scales and you can say, hey, this is the time where this now is important and it wasn't important for the last two years, but it's actually important now and here's why. Welcome everyone to the Liberty Ventures podcast. My name is Alexander McCobin. I'm founder and general partner at Liberty Ventures and am really excited to have another great guest on this podcast for investors and entrepreneurs who are purpose-driven and aligned around advancing a free and prosperous future. Victor is just an incredible leader who's run multiple companies before. The last one he left was being CEO of evite.com and is now a startup CEO starting an incredible new company that I hope we're able to get into here. Victor is an incredibly purpose-driven leader. We met through conscious capitalism. He's got experience both in the large enterprise space and now in the startup space and has worked with investors across the board. And Victor, just want to say thank you for not only being on the podcast, but everything that you're doing to advance a freer and more prosperous world and just being a heart-centered, purpose-driven leader. So thanks for joining today. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to be here, Alexander, and, and ditto back. I always like to start by asking for your story to provide context for everyone. So would you be willing to just share what's led to who you are and what you're up to today, especially as it might relate to the Liberty Ventures ecosystem? Yeah, no, for sure. Quick background on me. I'm not a tech bro, funny enough. I literally had college friends call me the other day and said, Victor, are you a secret tech bro? I'm like, what does that even mean? They're like, we think you're a good guy, but like maybe secretly deep down inside, you're like those tech bros out of that movie, the that's uh, the one where they kill all the people at the restaurant, the menu. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm a, yes, I'm a technologist, but not a tech bro. I've had 30 years in technology all the way from the smallest startup, you know, ground up startup all the way to Microsoft. I had a very purposeful career plan, which I could talk about, which was to really see the different stages of company growth at all of its different points. Because as a leader, I think it's super important for you to kind of viscerally need to understand the battle you're fighting. It's easy to be a sideline CEO and say, oh, of course, I'm just going to use this toolkit. But it was very clear to me now, you kind of, kind of need to be in the trenches for you to be able to know how to fight the battles. So I've done Sense It Intuit, Microsoft, and then three CEO roles. I ran a business called Ophoto, Kodak Gallery, which was one of the first big dot-com sites, Evite. And most recently, as you mentioned, I took over an AI video company called Movid, E-M-O-V-I-D. And I, I think the most relevant thing to share is, you know, in that whole arc, yes, I was building new skills and taking on more responsibility, but uh, I also went on a parallel journey, really expanding out my vision of like, what's the role, what is the role of business in this whole crazy world? And that has absolutely evolved as I've gone through the, the last 30 years. You know, I, I started with a very monopolistic view because I was at Microsoft and at Microsoft, I could see, oh yeah, of course you, you focus on shareholders. And at that time, employees like Microsoft was one of those first companies that really built an amazing employee experience. And so I, you know, I had, I would call it the two stakeholder model coming out of Microsoft. I'm like, okay, I get it. Business at least needs to do two things. I had zero customer DNA and zero customer centricity. And I learned that like literally zero, no, near zero, because that was not in the conversation at Microsoft, but into it, I did a four-year stint there and scaled up their online channel to over a billion dollars. But yeah, you know, way more valuable than that for me was the deep customer centricity and training that I got. So yeah, then I was like, oh, there's a three stakeholder world, clearly. And you know, I want to say over the last decade, decade and a half, and, and since we've known each other, I've really grappled with this fourth stakeholder, right, society, because it's clear to me, right, all the all these businesses operate in a 
societal ecosystem, right? They, they, they can't be ignored. On a journey level, I've evolved over time. And then, yeah, was was lucky enough to run into you guys at Conscious Capitalism years ago and realized that I'm definitely not alone in that journey, that there are many folks that are, I think, coming to similar places, whether they've been exposed to one bucket of thought or another. That that ecosystem is absolutely growing and Liberty Ventures is here to help build that, whether people are coming around to these ideas after they've been in their career for a while, like it sounds like it happened with you, or yeah. they're starting out that way and want to build companies from the ground up, thinking about all four of those stakeholders and how to really be purpose-driven. And there's a lot to unpack there, but let's start with this career plan you just mentioned, because we haven't talked about that before. And I'm really curious what that plan was and if you stuck with it or not, because I'll say... I had a career plan, which was not to be in the business world whatsoever. I thought I was first going to become a lawyer, then a philosophy professor, then I was going to be in the profit space and did not plan to get into entrepreneurship and investing now, even though I think this is the best way to make a positive impact in the world. But what was your plan and how much did you stick to it or how much did that change as your career? Yeah, no, I'm a weird law, super long-term planner. I have a plan for the next 50 years, even though I'm over 50, which sounds a little crazy. No, in high school, so in high school, I got exposed to the first computer, not the first computer in the world, my first computer, Commodore 64, fell in love with computers. And in high school, I realized that I wanted to be a CEO someday. I wanted to go run a software business. And I actually didn't know it was called a CEO because I had no coaches or mentors or anything like that. I, I equated it more to general. I was like, I kind of want to be a general. If there's like a general in charge of like doing software stuff, like that's who I want to be. Learned the terminology when I went to business school. But no, no, I've been incredibly purposeful about, I always work backwards from end goal, even at a young age. And so, you know, it's funny, I started undergraduate in computer science, uh, but then also was doing it kind of a dual track in business. And I remember opening a book in marketing. I still remember that graph vividly because I was like, oh, this is one of those things that's going to change my life. It was just a little pie chart. It said, hey, if you're going to be a CEO, here's the distribution of functions that get you there. And the uh, the, the engineering track was a teeny tiny sliver. And then there was this huge chunk, which is like, oh, sales and marketing. And I said, oh, well, if I'm going to optimize downstream probability, I should probably go into sales and marketing. I can always do engineering stuff on the side. And so now I've always made decisions in that vein. And then now that you know, this idea also came to me, oh, look, if I'm going to go run a large organization at some point, and this was really just me ideating on how to think about my own career, uh, I thought I really should go build up those underlying skill sets. Like there's no, there's no environment, there's no skill, there's no team that I want to be exposed to where I just throw up my hands and say, I have no idea what this is and have to learn on the job. So I've actually never chased a title from a career perspective. I always just chased learning. Like it was always against that learning plan. Like, am I learning a new business in a new environment? Or am I learning a new underlying skill set? And that that served me super well because it basically meant any opportunity that I got, I was ready for. And I could spend most of my time focusing on impact as opposed to learning. So what I love about that is not only did you think, what, what are the skills required for being a CEO, but you recognize that it was a diversity of skills. And oftentimes it's not what people who are initially building a product or who think they want to be an entrepreneur start with, which is being really passionate about one thing that they're building coming from the engineering side, or they just want to have that title and find a way to get it. Your point that it requires a lot of sales and marketing is really important and missed by a fair number of startup CEOs, especially. So can you share a little bit more about that realization and what you did to build that up, given you cared about engineering and that was your introduction to this? Yeah, no, I, I think it comes back to this end state back, right? Uh, it, it, was, it was always clear to me, especially once I went to business school and learned like, what are the components of a business? My first thought was, I need to understand the playing field. I'm going to actually play this game effectively. And so I've always, you know, it's funny, I run into people in business that are like, oh, God, do I need to learn accounting? I'm like, 
are you going to run a business someday? Like, are you going to be in business? Like, you kind of need to understand what this all means, or you're not going to be able to come up with the right strategies and tactics. Or, like, do you understand like the basics and foundations of leadership? Or, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's funny. I've loved every single job I've had because they've always been selected for closing that learning gap. And so I'm I'm always learning something new, and therefore I'm always progressing, at least in my own mind, right, from a career perspective. Whereas I know a lot of people don't have that mindset. They're just focused on like a title or salary or whatever it is. They may optimize in the short term, but then I think they sub-optimize career in the long term because they hit these ceilings where it's like, oh, you don't know how to read a balance sheet. Like, how are you, we're not going to make you a CEO. Like, how are you, why, why would you think you could even become a CEO if you didn't know how to read a balance sheet? Well, in the startup space, it's kind of easy because if you start the company, you're automatically the CEO. It's really easy to get that title without having those skills. But <laughs> you worked at big companies to begin with before you were became the startup CEO. And it's a lot yeah. more difficult to hide that there slash you've got other people who need you to have those skills. From the outside. Yeah, for sure. I would love for you to compare and contrast your experiences from the big corporate world to now being in the startup world, especially since you went from the big to the small here. Yeah, that's that's also the a huge gap, right? I was one of those folks coming out of Microsoft that were, this was back in the 90s, late 90s. There were a ton of businesses started by Microsoft execs that basically failed, not just because the bubble collapsed, but also because you know, the, the toolkit that you learn at a, what was then a monopolistic, you know, you know, the number one tech company on the planet, like it, it doesn't translate. And this was before the whole lean startup and agile, like the, the science of running startups, if you call it such a thing, was not evolved at that point in time. But it was just, it was patently clear to me in, in the startup world of, I, I don't have the toolkit like to run at the right pace that we need. And I th- I'm thinking about resources the wrong way. And that was, that was an amazing, going through a startup journey is an amazing learning experience because you, you realize that as a leader, you absolutely have to become a different leader, like a drastically different leader at different phases of company. And unless you know that that's coming, I guess, you know, you'll learn it on the job painfully or you, know, you get the right coaches and mentors. Or if you've been through the gamut, you can, you can just see the, you can see the the playing field shift as the business scales. And you can say, hey, this is this is the time where this now is important. And it wasn't important for the last two years, but it's actually important now. And here's why. Okay. So what's the one biggest thing you've had to learn in taking on this startup CEO role versus the roles you've had before? I'm happy to say, because I've done, I've done a startup and I've advised startups that I haven't had any surprises. Give us back to that model of like, okay. I know what the playing field is. And so I can quickly adjust. But the first startup I did way back in the first bubble, I'll just give you a tactical example. You know, coming out of Microsoft, of course, you know, competitive intelligence is super important. Like what is your product and how how is it being used? And and way back when there were these super expensive sites that you would pay, you know, hundred thousand dollars, right, to get really amazing market analysis of right, like how how many people are coming to my website. And it was like a hundred thousand bucks, I think, back then, which is insane, right? If you think about a startup's budget. And that's just a, a good tactical example where coming out of Microsoft, our mindset was, well, of course we're gonna succeed and of course we should have the telemetry to understand how we're doing. So of course we're gonna spend a hundred thousand like I would shoot a you know, shoot, shoot a founder in the head today if they went and spent a hundred thousand dollars of their first seed capital. <laughs> right. To get intelligence that they didn't need, because there's other ways to get it. And so that, that that's just what you know, we got this beautiful office space in the, in the middle of Manhattan. I'm like, no, that was a, that was a horrible idea. So no, just the you know, just the, the scrappiness and the creativity and the blinders with which you run. Right, as as a small company compared to the big companies, just just one of a thousand things that are that are fundamentally different. Now, I love what you also said that you actually came in with experience for the startup CEO role, having advised a lot of startups before. And so, I'm curious, was that part of your plan? Were you actually planning on advising these startups and getting involved in that ecosystem with an eye towards taking on this this role decades ago? 
Kind of. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like a I guess a two-edged sword or a two-pronged reason that I love getting involved with startups. One is exactly the reason that you mentioned, right? Even my concept of right startup operations, it changes every year. With AI, it's going to change again. And so having kind of a network of folks that you can talk to who can actually expand your horizons of how the world continues to change is super valuable. So yeah, that's that's a very explicit goal that I have working with startups. The other one, which I, these are both selfish goals. The other selfish goal is just the spectrum of businesses and innovation that they bring is just super cool to see. So yeah, whether it's being involved with you guys, right? With Liberty Ventures, or yeah, I'm, I'm a, a judge on the Intel Innovation Accelerator, right? So yeah, I think we look at like 200 companies or something that are just doing incredible things. So that just opens up your perspectives. So yeah, that's the coming to me half that's super valuable. And then of course the uh, yeah, the flip side of that is I just I love being able to just take some of the value that I've accreted and the knowledge that I have and be able to give it back to folks that could use it. There's there's nothing more rewarding I think than actually helping other people without any thought of. <laughs> It's not compensation. It's really just, no, that's kind of what you should do as a good citizen in the world. So, you know, people have helped me. I think you should should give back. So that is a perfect segue then actually into talking about this fourth stakeholder model that I know you're incredibly passionate about that you're incorporating into Emovid and everything that you do. Let's have you share a little bit about what that is and how you action that actually in a company actually. Yeah. So the, 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 the term fourth stakeholder is, you know, not that I coined it, but I, I use this as my shorthand for talking about the business's role in society at large. And maybe I'll start the gap. The gap that I see as, a, as an operator of many, many different businesses is you can't actually serve a stakeholder unless you treat it as a discrete thing. Meaning you can only serve your customers well when you think of them as a group, you have a dialogue with them, you have a back and forth exchange, right? You actually prioritize, you, you change your business behavior based on what that stakeholder is saying, right? At the, at the highest level, that's how I think about a stakeholder. And you have that dialogue with your shareholders, clearly. <laughs> that was the first one, right? That's the, in some ways the deepest. You have it with your customers. You have it with your employees increasingly as we build more transparency into businesses. But on the societal side, what I still see to a large degree is this mass cloud of issues. And as a business operator, you know, you look up into that cloud and you say, yeah, well, those hundred things all seem really important and they all seem like the right things to do. But one, I've only got finite resources. And two, oh, I've got these other three stakeholders <laughs> And some of the stuff you're asking me to do is going to completely conflict with them. And so it was super clear to me that like the business has to, in my mind, treat society as a discrete fourth stakeholder, which basically means they need to operationalize a process and a system around it. I put out a series of articles last year around just how to do that, because that's not an intuitive thing to do, right? To, to take this amorphous mass of societal issues and turn it into an actual stakeholder. So without having you recap all of those articles, A, where can people find them to read? And B... What's the biggest takeaway for how to actually operationalize that? Is there one single approach that you recommend to all businesses, or is it just about them coming up with some system to treat society as a stakeholder? So the the content, you can all find it at fourthstakeholder.com, so fourth with a four, T-H, or if that's too long, that's, it all hangs off of my website, which is www.victorcho.com. You'll see a big primary link up there. And a fairly short answer to your question is that what I what I came up with was a system to apply, kind of like a net promoter, if you guys are familiar with that on the customer side. And it was clear to me, it's like, you, you just need an engine and the engine is going to spit out different things for different companies. But it's really a, a very simple four-step process. And at the high level, those steps are the following. One, really assess your business at a deep level in terms of are you tuning it towards the greatest overall positive impact you can. Step two, are you really thinking about all of the downstream harms your business is creating? In- 
including downstream second order impacts, which are very hard to get on top of, especially as a big business. Three, do you have a very straightforward and simple prioritization process to figure out between those first two things, what should you go tackle? You can still come up with a hundred things in those two buckets and you can't go do them all. So how do you actually make the trade-off decision? And then the fourth piece is, do you have a dialogue with the stakeholder? Do you have a dialogue with society in some way, shape or form that is transparent and bidirectional? And if you do those four things, you'll end up with a very different set of you know, what I call prioritization matrices for the business. But at the highest level, I think you'll be getting to like the 99% case or the 95% case of acting as a better citizen. I love that. Thanks, Victor. I hope everyone goes and checks out Victor's website and reads the articles on fourthstakeholder.com. And in the last few minutes that we have, want to talk about Emovid. You mentioned AI is changing the way that you're looking at the startup landscape as an investor, and you're incorporating that into Emovid itself right now. So as much as you're able to share with everyone right now, what is Emovid? Why is this what you're dedicating yourself to now? And why is it so exciting from your perspective? And having looked at the deck and talked to you a number of times about this, I'm, I'm getting really excited about the product coming out soon. Oh, no, thank you. Oh, and I'm so bad. So we're still in stealth mode. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to do this in the highest level of abstraction. Uh, but what I can say, so Emovid is a video platform company. We're building a new video solution to enable deep and authentic asynchronous video communication. You know, Zoom has been solved, right? Synchronous video has been solved. But asynchronous video is not a huge thing. And there are literally billions of asynchronous digital communication flows going around the world, all in text today. And text is a horrible, it's great for some things, right? It's fast, it's efficient, but it's horrible for conveying voice or tone or body language. And so, you know, it, it it's mind-boggling in many ways that the society hasn't moved into this superior transport, the superior way to communicate, which is video. And the AI component of this business is very simple, which is, well, that's because people hate recording themselves on video at the highest level, right? It's not a natural thing. It's very, it's unnerving and people have some anxiety. So, you know, without going into all the details, like we're going we're gonna to bring all of the positive power of AI and where the latest technologies are to really figure out how to break through those behavioral barriers that have prevented people from using video in a big way asynchronously. Oh. I, I get that excited because I, I always think of businesses in the limit. It's another stress test I put on business, which is you know, in, the, in the limit of success of this business, there'll be more emotive communication going back and forth around the world, right? Less confusion as people misinterpret emails and texts without context. And we're going to make a whole bunch of people better speakers in the process. So it's all good. I can come up with some negatives, but well, we don't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that came to my mind when you, when you shared this with me is that I, I often say, I love living in the future. So many things from science fiction shows and movies 50 years ago are reality for us now. And in Star Trek, in Star Wars, there are always asynchronous video platforms. You get these video messages. All the yes, people look yes. good. In, and we don't have that right now. Part of what I also <laughs> realized is I think more about this and your point that people are scared to go on video is that. Well, they look really good in those shows because those are television shows or it's Hollywood production. And so, of course, they look good. Yeah. And creating something where everyday yeah. people have that quality to their videos as well will go a long way to normalizing that and allowing us to live in that future or to have that technology they envisioned 50 years ago for us. Yeah. No, that's right. When when Princess Leah went and asked for help, like she didn't send a text message with some emojis to, to Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? It was maybe someday we'll have holograms. Actually, that, that's not out of the vision of the company. <laughs> I, I know that you can't share much more right now because it's in stealth. Super excited when it does come out for everyone to learn more. But Victor, this has been great. I just have one more question that I, I ask everyone at the end, yeah. which the premise that one of my philosophies in life is that it's always best to give first and that for anyone who wants to connect with someone else or wants to get involved in a new industry or new business or learn, best thing to do 
is to offer to do something for someone else, to just volunteer with nothing, nothing in return expected, except for the opportunity to do that and to learn and to build that relationship. And so for you, I'm really curious, you're doing some amazing stuff already. You, you do a lot of work with a lot of different companies and leaders. If someone listening to this reached out to you and volunteered to help you in some way, what would actually catch your attention and get you to respond and say, that's interesting. Let's talk. God, you know, I don't know that there's anything. I think the simple act of somebody coming forward with that ask would be sufficient because it's so rare, right? It's it's so rare that people are looking to help you as opposed to are asking for something. <laughs> so it's not even anything in particular. If I got your question, and actually, I've had a couple of instances of that. Like there was a there was a, a marketing agency where the gentleman read some of my content. He's like, "Wow, I just love what you're doing. I would love to chat. Like, how how can I help? Like, I, it's like I've got an agency. I'm not trying to sell you on anything. I just think you're doing great stuff, and we built up a great relationship. But now I'm I'm a huge believer in the idea that putting out goodness in the world not only is probably one of the things that's going to make you most fulfilled as a person but it absolutely cycles back to you in the craziest unexpected and wonderful ways right that's one of the key learnings that i wish i'd gotten earlier in my career coming from microsoft i viewed everything very transactionally early in my career you know it's just my brain's also wired that way and so that took me until probably the last you know 10 15 years <laughs> to really understand that but it's so valuable it's so valuable alexander you know, hopefully everybody takes it to heart. I hope they do. And I hope anyone listening takes your request to just reach out to you and offer that to heart in particular, because you're doing amazing things. You're just such a great person. Victor, really, thank you for everything that you're doing and for sharing all of your insights and wisdom today. Oh, no. So fun. So fun. <laughs>